You are listening to the Evolution Exchange podcast, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful tech leaders in Australia. I'm Shauna. I help connect tech companies with top tech talent. And today I'm your host. Um, and we're back. So welcome back to another Evolution Exchange podcast. Today, I am joined by four senior leaders within the Australian technology industry, where we will be discussing the really interesting topic of balancing legacy code. We're going to cover areas such as simply what is legacy code, um, spending time on toil, how to develop a realistic roadmap and modernizing and replacing that legacy code, um, and much more. Um, so the best way to get started is if we could do an intro to our amazing panelists here today. Um, and we'll jump in. I'm looking at Rory, if you want to kick things off and tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I have been a developer for a long time. Uh, first time I started coding is actually in about 19s. I uh, started coding uh, when I was a teenager using Commodore 64, which many of you probably have never heard of. Professionally, I started coding at the year 2000. Since then, I've been a developer, um, tech lead developer, tech lead developer, jumping between these two roles until last year. Um, last year, for the first time, I decided to move on to leadership and management. I've been an engineer manager for uh, about a year at MYOB. I thought I'd give it a year, see how it goes. If I lock it, I will stay. If I don't, I'll go back being a developer. I like it, so I'm going to stay. Amazing. Thank you so much, Rory. Um, next up, I'm looking at Eric. Hey all, excited to be here today. Thanks for the invite. Uh, I'm Eric. I'm responsible for guiding the integration uh, team and practices uh, at Finding Success. And in a personal capacity, I'm, I'm trying to successfully do that as well with my beautiful young daughter. Um, and when I'm not working, you'll probably find me spending time with the family. Um, and most of the weekends at the moment are currently locked up writing a book, which should be out in May next year. So a bit of a personal plug if you're in the GitHub action space and you're looking to understand how to successfully implement it in your company i'm pretty sure i have something available for you in may next year that we can uh have a chat around all right so thanks so much eric um next up michael tell us a bit about yourself hey everyone my name is michael i'm a principal engineer at spriggy i've been at spriggy for about five and a half years now which time always gets longer every time i think about it i actually took a little bit of a lateral path into software engineering i actually studied medical school I worked as a doctor for a bit before moving across. Probably one of the best decisions I ever made, much happier now. Uh, I'm being a startup, I'm responsible for a few different things at Spriggy. Uh, my main day-to-day is mostly focused on our pocket money product, which is our most well-known product in our business. Another amazing story. Thanks so much, Michael. And last but absolutely not least, Brenton, introduce yourself, please. Hey, so my name is Brenton Race. I'm the CTO at a company called Blueshift. Uh, we make business software. Uh, I've been at BlueShift for, I think it's like 15 years now. I started as a developer when I was still studying at uni. And as the business has grown over the years, I've kind of just floated on top, I suppose. Uh, and so now I'm leading a team of like, it's about 15 or so people. Um, and learning now to delegate to managers underneath me, which is an interesting new challenge. 
Um, yeah, I'm really passionate. I think this is a weird thing to be passionate about, but I'm passionate about legacy code. It's something that we have a big challenge for because we've been around for like 15 plus years and our software is kind of the same software that's lived over that time. So it's definitely, I think it's underrated as a thing that people have to deal with. Um, so yeah, stoked to be able to talk about it today. Amazing. Thank you so much, Brenton. You know, it absolutely leads us on nicely um, to get stuck into the conversation. Uh, and our very first subtopic was brought today by Eric, um, leading right into what, let's have a little chat about what is legacy codes. I know Brenton, you're saying there, you know, it's something that is underrated. So yeah, let's have a chat about yeah, what is legacy code, Eric, if you want to give us your synopsis of that. Yeah, sure. I mean, in my experience, and we've come from a company that's been operating for you know a little while now, um, we have got uh, quite a lot of software in there. And you're very right, Brenton, legacy code isn't something to really be um, concerned about. In fact, it's it's more the history of where you come from. And in some cases, really, the definition of legacy code kind of isn't quite clear. Um, some people look at it as, oh, this is code that's been around for a while, or you know, it's running on runtimes that are no longer supported, or it's not documented properly, or it's locked up in a handful of people in there. Um, I, I kind of see it, it's probably a bit of a mixture um, from that, uh, and it really also depends on the type of code base itself, because if something really hasn't been uplifted over time, it might just be doing the job, it might be fine. And maybe a bit more around how do we unlock the knowledge inside of that area outside of a handful of individuals for the greater people to, you know, turn the tide on it and not make it look like legacy code anymore, but to make it easier to understand and everyone to jump on. So I'm really keen to hear others and what their definition or view is on legacy code. Yeah, brilliant. Um, who else have a little input there? I can have a go. So usually I... Uh, based on my experience, uh, legacy code is a somewhat outdated tech stack. It's like usually some technology that people don't want to work back, uh, work on, or if the skill is not there, or there are nicer, shinier new things that have come and developers want to work on those ones rather than the legacy code. Um, it's usually harder to change harder to maintain more extensive a lot of more effort you need to introduce any new functionalities but obviously it is working for the business we need to keep it running and there is always unfortunately a negative connotation to it like people don't want to spend time on it i've seen i've observed that sometimes they uh, people do not want to touch it and they do not want to improve it because they say, oh, it's legacy, you know. But if it's working and if it needs to stay alive, it, we need to spend time and make sure uh, we look after it uh, properly as well until it is uh, decommissioned. One thing I was actually thinking about this morning is if something is legacy, does it necessarily need to be decommissioned? Yes, no. I was thinking if it is legacy, it should definitely be decommissioned at some point in time, maybe not tomorrow, but I think if it is something that's hard to maintain, hard to add functionalities, it is something that we should have a plan for decommissioning it at some point in time. It can be five years from now, but I think we need to replace it with something that is easier to maintain and 
and not costly every time we want to add a new functionality. I don't know what everyone else see on that. Yeah, that's brilliant. We actually have a joke at Spriggy that all code is legacy code once it's been deployed, which might be the extremist view, but uh, we do joke about that quite a lot. I think particularly as a startup, over time you make a lot of decisions very quickly and we have to respond to the market pretty quickly as well. And so a lot of the time, a decision we made one year ago is actually no longer useful for us or we've introduced tech debt as a result because of a trade-off we had to make. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was actually looking at our sign-up flow a couple of weeks ago for something unrelated and I was the code I wrote four years ago that we no longer <laughs> use, but it's still there, like directly in the critical path for our users. So it's pretty interesting mm -hmm. how that stuff can happen, particularly if you're moving really quickly. And technology is moving quicker now than ever. Um, yeah. Interesting. Really, really good stuff, Michael. Um, Brenton. Yeah, I like what you said, Michael, like that today's, legacy, today's code is legacy code as soon as it's been deployed. It's probably not. <laughs> I would probably say that extreme, but I think it's it's interesting to think that the code that I'm writing today that I think, oh yeah, this is like great. But then, you know, <laughs> I guess there's a, maybe there's a fatalistic thing of someday I'm going to die and that code is going to be, you know, <laughs> deleted by somebody else. Um, I think it, I wonder if legacy code is more about our attitude to it than anything else yeah. in that, like if, if we like working with it and we think that it's still staying up to date, then it's not legacy code, but somebody else could look at the same code and consider it to be legacy. I think that's the case. We've seen that because we've been around for 15 mm. years, the same product, and we have new people that join at different, we've had new people join over that time. And so one guy that's been here for 10 years. The code to him is just that's just the code but then someone else joins and they can see oh this segment of code was written 15 years ago this was written five years ago i'm more comfortable with that so to them part of that's legacy but to somebody else well that's just that's just the code that's the code yeah it's probably it would you say it's hard to define like legacy oh, code and each each company will have its own take on legacy like have any of you got you know your idea of how you define it you know because i know you said there to you mentioned things, some legacy code can be hard to maintain, expensive to maintain, uh, resources are hard. Like, is that your kind of, is that how you define and spot a piece of legacy code? And, and when do you look at making things redundant as well? Sort of your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I'm thinking about the statement that Brenton made, if it's just how we perceive it, or is this a clear definition? Mm. Maybe if, I mean, Maybe if we are going to add functionalities, if we are going to keep using this system and we do not want to replace it with anything else, the fact that we have accumulated tech debt for a system doesn't necessarily qualify it for being a legacy code. We could have a system that yeah. is our current system and it's really in a bad shape and it's really hard to maintain, but it is not necessarily yeah. legacy. So it's not it's your legacy system will be hard to maintain but anything that is hard to maintain is not necessarily legacy if that makes sense absolutely interesting um and uh, that's fantastic and eric another point that you've made just off of that subtopic um you'd, you'd, you'd a few little points around this you were like is it aged code um is a code using legacy runtimes is it undocumented and hard to understand code What's your take on it? Uh, yeah, I mean, some of them are really 
clear. Uh, I think anybody that might be running COBOL would probably classify that easily as legacy code, and that's just from the tech stack and the H code perspective. Uh, but yeah. th- there's also times where you create some code, and uh, so what Mike was saying, it, you might intentionally create it for an experiment, for a proof of concept and that, and you might classify that as legacy code um, immediately because it just was there to test out some controller, and you, then you want to deprecate it and then learn from it and go from there. Um, so I, I think it really does, it's a hard one. There's probably not some, there's probably some key things that will stand out and go, yep, okay, everyone in the industry would collectively agree that this would be classified as legacy because we don't do that. We don't do Fortran and stuff like that anymore. So like, let's not go down that path. Um, but when it comes to uh, does it fit the purpose for your company and is it in use at the moment, uh, I, I think it, it's really something that you need to take into from both your resourcing perspective, you know, your cost of change perspective, um, and, and how well known it is it to the company. If it's doing the job, you've got a good team behind it that's supporting it. Uh, perhaps it's you know using some slightly oldish leg- legacy tech, web forms, win forms, whatever it might be. Perhaps that's fine still. Brilliant, excellent. Um, and then you also mentioned sometimes it might just be unlocking the knowledge behind the code that's yeah. interesting very interesting yeah. what's everyone's experience on that <laughs> um that one's a very fun one uh there are there's a lot of tech built up over time um and there's been a lot of business issues that have been solved in that tech over time and it is locked up in a handful of people and we, i try to solve it through um creating more passion in the product um identifying the issue and getting people behind the issue as opposed to the particular technology that's on there uh, mm-hmm. and, and getting different types of team members to, to jump on board and, and give it a crack so when they've gone and they're doing something that might be doing an sre ca- at capability take the opportunity at the same time to document out how it happens what was your experiences on it because it might make you know might inform a decision later on around is this a replacement or is this just something that we need to uplift a little bit and stuff excellent I would take this on to the next point, and I think, um, Shore, you've got a lot of good stuff to say around this as well, um, is what are some techniques to improve legacy code once you've kind of defined it <laughs> in one way or another? Uh, what's everyone's sort of um, insights on this about improving it? Um, I just want to continue on what Eric just mentioned yeah, sure. uh, about improving is that legacy systems, they have by a cognitive load for a new developer. So what Eric mentioned, which is making sure you document, you know, document as much as we can, create, I don't know, just workflows, anything that makes people's life easier um, or having a less cognitive load for the system for someone who's joining, it's definitely going to be an improvement because we need to look after the system. We need to make things work. Uh, so the more we document and the more we reduce the cognitive load for people, it's going to help them have a better time and suffer less, basically, working on a legacy system. But one thing that um, is very, uh, it happens for any system as well as uh, for legacy system is just having a concept of tool. A tool is the concept I think that Google has introduced I just need to add the definition of tool 
from their post about this, which is toll is the kind of work that tends to be manual, repetitive, automatable, tactical, devoid of enduring value, and this, and that scales linearly as a, as series grows. So, because the legacy systems have been growing for so long, this type of work has just grown, and people, especially if as someone has been with the organization for a long time. They know these bits of tricks with the system that, oh, this thing keeps failing every day, every week. And if I just go and click this button or check this little checkbox, it's just going to go away. So there is a lot of, the legacy systems tends to have a lot of work like that. They are yeah. hidden away by that uh, single person that beautifully just do it and they don't let anyone they don't mind doing it it's not taking a lot of time but it's just time and it's just effort and and we don't usually measure this type of time you know we just do it some people do it they don't mind it some people get frustrated and they leave the company because of this type of work so one thing that i think can help with legacy systems is be mindful of this type of work deliberately spend time on it, identify them, fix them, and then you can see that this is going to make everyone's life easier. It's going to remove the mystery of, oh, why this thing stopped working again, you know? And yeah. just, just small improvements and addressing the tool is one technique that uh, I can see work. Nice one, well, thank you. Okay, anyone else like to give their insights on how they've improved us? Sort of to bounce off that, um, yeah. there's a book called Two Second Lean, which uh, our ops team has like really, really embraced. And it goes to what um, Shari was just talking about, like this concept of dealing with the little issues as they come up. And Two Second Lean, the concept is a really, really good book. I definitely recommend it. Uh, it's kind of this concept of day to day, you just want to make these really small improvements. And as you do that, it will obviously accumulate over time to be big improvements. Um, and that's definitely, I think that's definitely a key key thing that we need to consider. Thank you. That's brilliant insight. Michael or Eric, anything you'd like to add there to how you have improved it? Uh, I'll jump in. You're yeah. right, Cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, thank you. I've got some night reading tonight, Brenton. Uh, the... <laughs> I really, yeah, really resonate with a lot of that. I mean, evolution, and this is not a pun on the company name yet, but evolution itself inside of products does need to always continue in some form. Um, mm -hmm. And it's naturally going to happen through feature requests or it's naturally going to happen through, you know, trying to remove some of these monotonous tasks out of the way. Uh, I think how you do it, it is different in each company. Um, one thing I can talk about my experience is that we've had kicked off days where we focus particularly on this and we try to innovate a particular piece. And it might not be the highest entry you know, critical bug that we're getting, um, we're trying to attack, but we might be going, okay, look, slightly legacy supports Otel. Let's try and get Otel into it. So we get a little bit more visibility around what's happening in there and, and can be a bit smarter around it and what we focus on next. Or might be even increasing our, our just general logging capability if it hasn't got some of that capability in there for, for Otel and the like. Um, so yeah, th there's a lot of ways um, we've done it through. Uh, internally, we've got a process called like a DIY day where we really focus on innovation uh, and, and trying to build the best um, and present it. Um, and other cases, it it's really drawing upon the passion of engineer because if an engineer is just being tasked to do the same thing over and over and over, I, I think 
we probably need to encourage them to try and make it cheaper for the next time. Otherwise, what's the point of doing it? Um, and, and I think it's it's something that we need to encourage from like a top-down approach, um, and even amongst our peers as well. When we see us, you know, solving the same thing over and over, we have to ask the questions: Why did it happen again? Why why was it? You know, why didn't we do something slightly different from the last time? And it might be fine to have the same result, you know, ten or so incidents as you're prioritizing everything else going on around you. Because I get it, we can't fix everything in the world on the first day that it occurs. But it certainly should be something that should be recorded and, and looked into and checked in on at some point in time. Brilliant. Excellent. You mentioned Hack Days, um, insourcing, gig marketplace. Um, so a lot of yeah. fun ways of doing it as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm a huge fan um, of inner sourcing. Um, it, it's something that's not always easy to bring into large companies, I get. Um, but I think that there's a lot of value in it. And, and things like you know, the practical use cases of a gig marketplace not only helps really grow your engineering uh, capability, it also gets other people on board and, and gives them the opportunity to learn. I, I came from um, service desk before that. I was in networking and, and support and that, that went up through and taught a lot of the things I needed to learn myself uh, and yeah. gig marketplaces you know they were loosely adopted inside the company at that point but they were just major major contributors to where I am today so I think it's it's demonstrated personally for myself that it can work um, I think I'd like to think as well that as I was learning I was evolving the products around me um, I'd to hope so I hope my peers would validate that one day uh, but yeah I, I think that's um, a really healthy way to, to grow a good engineering culture as well as reduce some of this legacy code and, and technical debt of toil um, for that matter. Fantastic. Brilliant. Uh, Michael. Yeah, I think the small changes really resonates with me. Um, one of the things that we found really tricky, particularly at the beginning, was how we justify this kind of work. Um, particularly if we're trying to move quickly and make product innovations, it can be really hard to convince the PM that actually we need to spend a couple of weeks just fixing this bit of tech dirt or legacy code. Yeah. I think that one way that we're really successful in that is actually really focusing on developer experience as a tactic and really coming up with metrics that allow us to justify to the business, well, actually now we're getting things committed on a daily basis rather than weekly basis. That can be really effective. Yeah. Another example that... Uh, got brought up previously was legacy platforms still on python 2 it's end of life in 2020 uh so that one it was actually really easy for us to justify particularly working in a financial product uh for a risk perspective it's really easy for us to be able to work on that and we now have a dedicated team to work on that so that's just a case where we had to get it done we just had to justify putting a team together to be able to work on that particular piece of work uh -huh. uh, a third example that we found really useful is we try to use APIs a lot in our business, particularly between teams. But uh, one example that we've done in the past is putting a legacy system behind an API that we've designed to be future thinking. So uh, we use the backend for frontend pattern a lot with our apps. When we rewrote our app from iOS native to React native so that we can have a cross-platform, we actually put an API between our old iOS API and the new client that allowed us to be able to build React Native client using its natural patterns, but also not have to touch the legacy system straight away. And that's really paid off for us. It really allowed us to iterate on our app really quite quickly without having to worry about the legacy code. 
And now that we've gotten our app to a really good place, we're able to go back and modify that previous system and be able to make it better over time without having to touch the app, which has been really successful, I would say. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. Brilliant stuff. Um, comment on one thing Michael said there about like the rewrite that's required for moving off Python. I think the small improvements is important and like critical, but sometimes we find things that small improvements are just not going to work because there's major structural limitations that we do need to have a significant re-architecture. And I guess that's where for us as senior leaders is kind of our responsibility to make sure that there is an architectural roadmap to mm. move forward from that legacy code so that we're not just stuck in, oh, well, we can't move off Python 2 because we have all of this stuff coupled to it. We have to go, well, no, at some point we've got to move and we've got to make a plan. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And that's been a really big focus for us going forward is making sure that that architectural vision is there. And it's not that every single detail is decided, but at a very high level, we understand, well, what are the layers going to be? How are things going to interact? And where do we really want to head to? That's been really key, not only in trying to get those legacy changes justified, but also empowering our engineers to be able to make good decisions that will help us in the future and reduce that legacy going forward. Yeah, totally. You need to have a direction and bring the team on the journey so that they can see that there is there is a direction and a journey and a destination that's not just where we are today. Yeah, for sure. Um, and one thing that uh, Michael mentioned, and I, I tried something and it worked for my team very well, so I'll share it here, is uh, exactly the same uh, issue of how do I convince my product owner, product manager to spend time on tech it and, you know, basically spending two weeks of time to deliver nothing for the customer. Um, one thing that we I tried and it worked well was uh, I had a conversation. I mean, the, our product manager was pretty on board, so I didn't need to try hard to um, explain what's the value of TechDid. Um, but what we did is we designated 20% of the time to um, addressing TechDids. We have legacy codes, there is accumulated TechDids, and we just need to address them. So after this, it was a lot easier to basically manage the stakeholders. It's like, it's 20% of the time, we only have 80% of the time to spend on uh, functionality. And then between myself and our developers, we decided what was the most important tech that, that we wanted to address using that mm-hmm. 20%. And this wasn't a constant struggle of just trying to get one story in our next sprint. So we have that time and we use it as we see fit. So that made everything a lot simpler for us. Brilliant. Um, Does anybody else want to add to that? Much more to add? I think I talk some history around that is we followed a very similar approach. We have got some cases where we've had to um, look at how do we migrate some stuff because the value is still in the product, but the platform, you know, as we mentioned, the Python 2 example is is just not, um, it's not up to scratch where we need it to be. Um, So in cases where it isn't as cut, uh, a clear cut to to move over to the new tech stack. We have had to adopt like a big, um, sorry, strangle a fig uh, pattern in there so that we can start iteratively bringing over these new features onto a new platform or shoehorsing in like existing web form stuff into MVC applications and the like. So, yeah, there's always a, a path to to still deliver on product um, functionality, but just evolve it still just that little bit each time so that the next time it's not as big as a cell. 
I think it, it's it's that incremental piece and that's going to grow that passion and it's going to do all sorts of strange things, you know, late night commits coming through from people because all of a sudden they're just really excited to to progress it through. Not that we encourage that. But things like that happen because by nature we just want to yeah. just want a better code base to work on the next day. Amazing. Awesome stuff, guys. Thank you. Um, I think then it, it does actually bring on to Michael. You want to cover how we talk about legacy code at a culture perspective um, and understand the context in which it's written. Interesting. Um, and a really good point. Tell me about that. Yeah, I think um, we've already alluded to it at least earlier and Eric was talking about unlocking the knowledge uh, I think it's really important from a cultural perspective to be able to understand why that system exists. We mentioned a bit earlier, like a lot of new developers will come along. To the older developers, it's just the code, right? But to the new people that are really seeing yeah. the context in which it was built or why it's the way that it is and can often struggle with understanding that and wanting to work with it. I think it also ties in strongly to trying to keep developers around. Like it's really hard to have a high rate of attrition these days and have that system knowledge go out of the door. And these days often it's a lot easier for people to move companies instead of stay where they are to get good pay rises. Yeah. So uh, I think one thing that we've tried to do from a cultural perspective is A, be really honest with people. We yeah. do have legacy and we say that in the job interview now and that was actually a really key turning point for us in trying to hire people is actually be honest and just say, look, it's not the best when you get here it's not going to be perfect code. It's not the shiniest new technology, but it solves a really key problem for our customers and we're really committed to improving it. That was the first thing. And the second thing was giving them all the context that we can. You know, at this point, kind of, I've been around for five years, so I can usually explain all of the stories behind why things were built and really getting yeah. people into that journey. And all the time, the reason why we made the decisions actually had really positive effects for the business. So, even just giving people that context and helping them have some kind of understanding and feel like they're part of that journey can be really useful to try to keep them around and have them really motivated to work on these kinds of projects. Yeah, I think it's great. Never sugarcoat anything uh, when you're building a team because people then when they get in there, they already knew what they were getting themselves in for. And a lot of the time it's um, a lot more, t- I suppose it's that um, under promise over deliver it can be a lot nicer than than expected. Um, I agree with that. Something that I do when I'm qualifying roles for companies and tech stacks and platforms, it's about understanding the why and then bringing engineers along the journey of why it's there, how it impacts the business. And what you find is you you end up finding and hiring the right people because their mindset is the why and the business and then back to technology. Um, I think that's really important in engineers these days. That's brilliant. Um, How's everyone else doing that? I really resonate with what you just shared, Michael. I've started doing something really similar when we onboard somebody and I'm doing like a training around our system architecture. I've started framing that as a little history lesson, like starting from when Blue Ship started and our CEO wrote the first version of our code and take it through the journey. And I can talk through, well, this is what we did. This is what was good about that. This is what was bad about that. These are the business decisions behind that. This is what we learned. And that's been really positive in, I think, framing just the way that people understand the system and the legacy aspects of it that they can go oh yeah that was like there's actually some history and some you know, a valid reason behind why all of that is there helps people to have a i guess a bigger mental model of um a more complete mental model of the system and not just 
see it for what it is today. That's, I wonder if you change it, change the word legacy to be more in line with history. <laughs> um, yeah, that's really insightful. Um, okay, anything else? Any more to add on that? Um, on that topic, yeah, and how you talk about it. Yeah, I think it's uh, what you said is interesting. It um, is a good segue to what I was thinking, which is any company that has any history of maybe longer than, I don't know, three, four years, uh, it is going to have some sort of legacy. So apart from the new startups, everywhere else we go, um, there is legacy code. So we just need to appreciate the fact that this is part of our job. It's not a bad thing. It is just how it is. We need to improve it. We need to make it easier to work with legacy code as long as it is around. Uh, but it is there. Brilliant. Fantastic. Another piece um, you, you mentioned, Michael, we've kind of touched on it, but it might be just to clarify a bit more about like the strategy for handling legacy code. Um, you were looking at like how to justify improving piece legacy code and when to know when to sort of scrap it, make it redundant and start fresh or buy third party solution. Um, what's everyone's experience around that? I mean, I could talk to what, what it is that we do at the moment in our area. Yeah. Um, yeah. We like to make it a, a, a decision piece, I guess. Um, uh, we, yeah. sorry, what I should say is we kind of start up a decision space in which we can kind of list down all the options that are available for us and then collectively all decide on it. Um, uh, and again, uh, I don't think I could really probably even go into anything where it is a, a scrap it versus start, start fresh things, but um, you, you got to do what makes sense at the time for your customer. Uh, you're looking at some okay. of the code, especially some of the code that might have been created over the GFC period where there was you know, not a lot of money moving through the industry at that point. People needed to yeah. do it quickly. Um, there, there might be some stuff that's fallen out the back of that and, and it's fine at that point to potentially now reinvest back in it to uplift it to that point um, but it might also make sense because we might be in you know, um, another GFC of some form that we look to get something off the shelf that gives us some immediate value uh, so yeah it's it is a decision thing that needs to be taken on a case by case but it needs to be a, a collective decision in that case um taking into account all the factors of the environment at that point and people's experience. Brilliant. Anyone else? Uh, I guess one good thing that it, it it helped me imagining and what the best way to go ahead or keep keep this legacy code replace it was this concept of is this is the functionality that this legacy code delivering for you a differentiator in the market. Um, yeah. If, you know, if like 10 years ago, you wrote it because there was no other alternatives and you had to write it for the business to work. And now, is this the functionality, is it delivered by another company? Can you get a software service? Can you get something to be replacing this legacy system that's not actually delivering much value except it just sort of helps your business running but it's not your core capability really maybe you should really buy the service somewhere rather try to rewrite it but if it is a core functionality yes then maybe we should really decommission and get something that is easy to maintain 
and we can easily add functionality to it. I think a classic example of that one would be auth, right? I imagine quite a few legacy systems have rolled their own auth for quite a while and sometimes it can come back to sometimes it can come back to bite you. I think Yeah. In my case I have it really easy because financial company we get audited all the time. It's really easy for me to say, Look, we've got to fix this guys. I, I can't provide assurance on that, but I think when you don't have that easy way out, sometimes it's gonna be really hard to justify. Yeah. There's a, I have a lot of clients coming back to me saying, okay, we've got projects coming up. It's all to do with auth. <laughs> Obviously, because of the strict compliance that's going through. Um, but interested, good stuff. Friends, I feel like you you, you went to face up a couple of times. <laughs> yeah. Take it away. Oh, I was just going to agree with um, what Eric said and also what Shara said, that like it really yeah. just depends. There's, uh, yeah. I was thinking, what are the factors that it depends on? I think there's some cases where it's a really obvious no brainer like the lifetime of the tech stack if you're using a tech stack which is end of life uh and particularly there's like security issues with that or other issues you've just got to move off it you've got no choice yeah. um but if, if say the applications it's still being used but it's not being changed maybe you can stay on that tech stack if it's um if it's not got security issues or other issues so the, the other factors are is the application being used is that projection that's going to continue to be used or is it going to be superseded by something else and are you still changing it because if you're if you stopped making changes to a product we've got a couple of pieces of software where we developed them a while ago and we just don't make changes to them anymore and so sure they're legacy code but we're not going to spend any time on improving that because we're never going to make changes to the code so if it's operationally okay then it's not a problem but with other areas of our code they are being actively changed and we're adding functionality regularly and in that case then we need a point in to handle that and make sure that we can continue to hire people that can work on it and that want to work on it and that's going to be an enjoyable experience for everyone and that we're going to be productive so then that's a case where we have to do something about it and then the question of do we rewrite it or do we incrementally improve it or replace it with a third party, I think that comes down to those same factors, particularly in the tech stack side. Like our experience, we've tried a couple different ways. We have one main application and we've tried a rewrite and it didn't yeah. really work out as well as we hoped it would. But then we've now pivoted to, we're still rewriting it, but in a different way. And I really love the strangler pattern. It's like my favorite architectural pattern. I just want to use it okay. for everything. Obviously it has a very specific use case. Like taking your legacy system, putting it behind a facade, which is new, and then incrementally adding your new stuff to gradually replace that old stuff. And that we've applied that successfully many, many times. We've yet to succeed with like a total rewrite. And so the rewrite that we're doing now is rewriting part of our software, which is end of life from a tech stack perspective. And like there's no, like we've got to, but then the parts of it that are still on from a tech stack perspective we're just kind of um, mapping them into the new architecture with the strangler pattern with the intent that we can gradually uh, handle that over time and that's a much more uh it's a much less extreme thing i guess than trying to rewrite everything from scratch and just get it right yes it's, it's not possible that's why we do like iterative software development with agile because it's never possible to get something perfect the first time so that's that. I guess that's what works for us. That seems to be working for us. I guess we'll see how our 
how do things go? But so, that's brilliant. Yeah, um, that's what we've learned from our experience. You guys, yeah, your your main point was that like to develop a realistic roadmap on how to modernize and replace the legacy is the strangler approach. Is that what you guys? Is that how you guys do that? Yeah, I think that that we found that to be really successful in that it allows you to you've got a legacy application that works users are relying on it it's fulfilling its purpose if mm. you can continue to rely on that and gradually phase across you're going to be better able to get feedback on a new system alongside yeah. the old system and you can cut across incrementally rather than going for a big bang approach mm. which our experience has been that that's worked better so yeah. Uh, there are situations where it can work and situations where it can't. So it's not a one size fits all, but it's a tool in the tool belt. Good stuff. I've never heard of that before. Um, so yeah, that's not that's something to note. Sorry, Soraya, I cut you off there. <laughs> uh, uh, sorry, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. So oh, good. When when um we think of rewriting, there's this uh, quote that I don't know from who it is. <laughs> So I'm really sorry, but I just love the code, which says any, any feature parity is a lost opportunity. So it's like often when we want to replace something, we say, oh, I want the exact same thing, just, just with a new technology, which is the not correct approach because yeah, the functionality that we delivered 15 years ago, we might not use all of them. We will not need all of them. Definitely. You know, so this is a time at the time of rewriting if you like it is the best time to revisit and see the things that i'm building do i actually need it does my customer actually use that is this the best way to deliver this functionality so feature parity is usually not a good way of going about replacing a legacy just wanted to mention that nice one yeah i love it really really good yeah, um, sorry. I, I would actually second that. Um, I, I don't know how much success everyone had as well as trying to keep a product's current features set the same as what it will be in two years' time. Generally, I'm finding that people will try and add more and more, and then that goalpost just gets further and further away. So, really taking the opportunity to review it from yeah. right, what's the business issues we're trying to solve here, and then tackling that. I, I think it'll give you much more success for your customer as well because you're going to be able to say, look, we're, we're solving things differently now. We're cleaning out the all the tech debt that might be there and um, yeah, just trying to build a, a more loved product by the, by the customer. Brilliant. I love it. Really, really good. Um, all right. We're, we're getting through this pretty quickly, guys, but it's so insightful. Um, one thing, Shrawe, um, you've touched on a lot of your points already, which is fantastic. Uh, it's just flowed really well through, but um, you mentioned handing over your legacy system to a team. Um, or like contractors or consultants that are experts in that stack. Tell me about your experience around that and how that's worked well for you. Yep. So um, often um, when we have multiple systems, like how my system, um, sorry, how my team is working at the moment, we, yeah. we owning so many different systems. Some of them are legacy, some of them are tech stack. And it was really, really hard to actually end. Uh, decide where I should time so I should I should spend the time on like do we fix the legacy system do we look after this tech that, that we have that's costing a lot of um, time or should we deliver a uh, feature new features for the um, customer this is I realize it's a luxury that not many companies 
may have, but we did have this luxury. And what we <laughs> did was handing over our some of the legacy system to a consultancy that they are experts in that. So what they do is we handed over the legacy systems. They do not add new features or anything. They will just make sure the system is reliable. They uh, address all the bits and pieces that kept failing. You know, they made sure the security vulnerabilities are up to date. They fix all of that. And they basically guarantee that they will run the system for us uh, in the meantime that we are going to work on the new systems and hopefully by two or three years time or whenever the time comes, we can decommission the legacy systems that they are maintaining for us. So this works really well for us because it basically freed up the time uh, for my team members to work on the things that we wanted to work on and speed up the moving away from the legacy system, which was basically pulling us back and slowed yeah. us really. Good. I appreciate it. I know you like said you have the luxury to do that, but where you can utilize resources, absolutely do that. But you've you felt that worked really, really well for you. Um, so it's like another idea, I suppose. Um, any thoughts on that or any experience doing that or? Um, Irina? I think probably, oh, I think probably the one thing I would add probably for a startup perspective is um, yeah. For us, a lot of the time we're iterating on our products, they're not really at the stage where they're stable. And so mm. one of the things we really struggle with external agencies or contractors is that it can be really hard to get a lot of the business context out there yeah. with them. Um, mm. Whereas if you have a system where you're not really making changes, the code is all there, you really just want to maintain it, make sure that it's stable, that could be a lot easier, I think. Makes sense for that situation. Absolutely. Brilliant stuff. Okay. Um. So just to kind of, I think, kind of getting through, but to wrap it up, there's a really good point. We've sort of touched on it, but uh, Brenton, you wanted to talk about how can we make our teams feel good about working on legacy code? Um, I think a good point we've all kind of talked through was, um, yeah, speaking to people at a very early stage about the history of it. Um, but what are the techniques have you all um, found works and what have you implemented to, you know, I suppose, kind of brighten the, a light on legacy and the importance of it. Yep, I'll, I'll jump in and I'll Go say that I've, I've probably tried a couple of different strategies uh, myself and really which one has been dependent on the type of issue I'm trying to solve in there. Like if I'm seeing a high yeah. incident count and I know that it's on a legacy code base, then I'll actually try and encourage uh, some of the SRE team or engineers in general just to jump on and, and try to look at it from an auto-remediation perspective and at the same time mm-hmm. try and take the approach to uplift some of the the unknowns inside that product or surface some of that unknown detail back up to it. Um, again, if, if it's locked up IP and individuals uh, as a problem I'm trying to solve, I'll generally try and pair them with another engineer to go work on a strategy to be a validator of a strategy um, and certainly provide a lot of key input into it. Uh, but at the same time, giving that other person the opportunity to go in, you know, fresh eyes, um, new desire to, to make it better, but also having the comfort that they've got someone that understands why it is that at that point and inadvertently then i've unlocked the ip from one person now into two people we just started taking that approach with certain modules off the the stack that we're trying to address at that point um outside of that brilliant innovation type days are also pretty good um i've kind of touched on that in a couple of times now but i'm a real big fan of them um yeah i think you can 
solve a lot of things under it, especially if you theme it towards uh, a particular area. You don't normally like to stand away of innovation, but if you kind of say, hey, look, we're going to do some innovation um, and it's going to be around observability in the products, like that might be a key thing to getting you a bit more. And observability can be on many fronts and be at a technical level, but it could also be understanding the business problem more and unlocking mm. that information from it. Up. And everyone can get involved then, right? It doesn't need to be engineers yeah. only. It can be BAs, it could be product owners, it could be delivery managers, delivery leads, whoever they are, engineering leads managers, they could all jump in and start contributing in their own way to unlocking their IP from themselves or from a, a key person on a key platform and just disseminating it out to everyone. Um, so yeah, a couple of different, uh, I guess, strategies in the toolkit depending on what it is. And I'm sure there's probably a lot more as well out there. Good. That actually sound, that does sound fun. <laughs> I have to say, really good. Amazing. Thank you. Anyone else? Uh, I can think of two techniques. Um, uh, one, I already touched on a little bit about cognitive load. Um, yeah. Basically adding documentation. Another way that I think we can reduce cognitive load is logging and tracing. It's, it's just because one of the problems with legacy systems is hard to understand, hard to troubleshoot. And adding yeah. logging and tracing makes troubleshooting a lot easier and it reduces the cognitive load as well significantly. So one way to help the team feel better when they're working on legacy system is just add loggings everywhere, you know, make sure it's really easy to troubleshoot. Uh, another thing is uh, that I've tried is being mindful of uh, who has been spending more time on the legacy code last time and try to sort of yeah. balance it out and make sure it doesn't happen that there's one person who is just nice and put their hand up all the time and they just ended up <laughs> looking after the legacy code all the time so deliberately make sure different people pick different stories give break to that person that had to spend two weeks on the legacy code and sort of balancing it out yeah really good point um Brandon, I feel like you've you've brought this topic, so I want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> yeah, I think the the history history thing we were talking about before is really interesting, and something that I guess a tangent off that is thinking about the way we frame legacy code to our team and the way we talk about it, yeah. um, and talking about legacy code in a positive way and not talking about it as a bad thing. Because I've definitely fallen into that trap. Uh, a number of years ago, it was a really good learning experience of I kind of got caught up in talking about our legacy system in kind of a down way. Yeah. Uh, and that really had an impact. I realized now in retrospect, it really had an impact on the way that the team perceived it. And so for me now as a leader, I've got to remember that the way I talk mm. about the system is the way people are going to perceive it. It's going to be a big factor. So talking about the positive aspects of the history is part of that, talking about the value that we're getting from it and talking about just not talking about it as a bad thing because it's not it's not it's not a bad thing that we need to be stressed yeah. about and having a clear roadmap is really helpful in being able to talk about it and frame it in a positive light to say well this is a step in the journey it's not just a pit of despair that we're stuck in yeah and the other point really good. which is the other point which is on a total different tangent is there's this framework for thinking about motivation uh yeah called Autonomy Mastery Purpose. You guys heard that? I mean, you've seen some nods. So, nope. um, yeah, it's a framework of thinking about how people are motivated. 
So the idea is that we're motivated when we have autonomy, when we're free to do what we want to do. Or, sorry, I should say we're intrinsically motivated. So we can be extrinsically motivated by pay or by having or by like force. But to be intrinsically motivated to do something, the idea behind this framework is that you need to have autonomy. You need to be able to do do as you, you see fit and you need to have mastery. You need to be able to be able to do a good job and you need to have purpose and you need to, I guess, see that what you're doing is worthwhile doing. And I think one of the big challenges with legacy code is that people don't experience mastery because it's just really hard. It's like a section of code that said, this is a technology that I've never worked with that Brenton wrote this 15 years ago and now he's sitting in meetings all day and he doesn't have to deal with it anymore, but now it's my problem. Uh, that's what my team is probably thinking to themselves. And they're like, I have no idea how to do this. I've just, like, what am I supposed to do? And so that can be really frustrating and demotivating and I guess a bit depressing if you feel like, well, I've got this bug that I've got to deal with in this legacy system and I've just got no idea what to do. So we need to address that. And I think there's a couple of ways. That's a really hard problem. Obviously. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> we've got to look at, I guess, a couple of things we can look at. We can look at the skill mix that we have in the team. So I try to make sure when we have teams that there's some people that have been with the business for a long time. We've got new people so they can work alongside each other and learn from each other. And we've been trying to be really intentional with training. For me, providing training to the guys, passing on knowledge to different areas. If, particularly if we're going to be working in a particular area that they haven't worked with before, i got to make sure that mm-hmm. they're sufficiently trained in the business context behind that and in the technical context. Brilliant. And it can also go back to framing as well because as software developers, we all, I'll just stereotype all of us, but we're all coming from a background generally of we enjoy problem solving and we can think yeah. of working in this legacy code as, oh, this is a pit of despair of working in this legacy code I don't understand. Or we can think, well, this is just another form of problem solving. And where we can frame it in a more positive light, that can help uh, us to realize, well, I may not have mastery over this specific piece of code, but I am a master problem solver and I can just figure this out. And the other thing is uh, emphasizing those other two parts of that autonomy mastery purpose framework. If we can go, well, we're going to be a little bit down on mastery, but if I can give the team more autonomy and I can really emphasize the purpose behind what they're doing, then that's going to help them to stay motivated, uh, even though their mastery might not be quite as strong. And autonomy, uh, Shari talks about like 20% time. We've done various different variants on that over the years, but that, that definitely, I think, helps when you empower the team. And like Eric said as well, including the team in the collaboration and developing your roadmap, that can help them to feel... I guess that's not quite, it's it's not quite autonomy that they're doing themselves, but they're part of the decision-making process. They're not just being told what to do. They have a say in what's being done. That's brilliant. Really, really good. And actually, from my end as well as a, a tech recruiter, I sometimes find it my, a big part of my responsibility when speaking to, you know, junior software engineers that come onto the market and then, you know, I don't want legacy. I don't want to work in this company. It's loads of legacy. And then you speak to, you know, the true engineers like yourselves that like have, you know, chat, like, solve serious technical challenges. And a lot of those technical challenges were in, you know, the legacy code. You know, that's where people really kind of evolve as, as engineers is what Eric said earlier on is like unlocking the knowledge of what is there. Um, and most of the best engineers, their proudest achievements are, you know, tackling something in, in a big 
enterprise piece of legacy code and, and making it work and making it run and speed time and optimizing it. And it's not just something that they've built from scratch. Um, and it's something I'm always encouraging juniors to be like, don't just stay in these small startups and move along to the shiny thing. Like this, you need to get in here and immerse yourself in a proper tech challenge, which is exactly what you said, like let legacy. And I wonder is the words, like you were saying, we, like, we should shine a light on a more rather than, you know, kind of having it, like you said, being stuck in like a dungeon of like, oh, this is horrible. But um, it's really insightful to hear how you're doing it and everyone here. Does anyone else want to add to that? I think all the ideas that Russ mentioned are really great. I think motivation on its own is its own podcast, right? You could talk about that for hours. Uh, we speak about that model a lot at Triggy. It's a, I think it's a really great one. I think the two things I'd probably want to add, uh, I've never met a programmer who doesn't want to make things better. Yeah. I, I can't think of a single person. And so I think that framing is really important. Um, the other thing I, I think about and I'm quite sensitive to a lot is kind of um, interpersonal relationships within the team I think a lot of the time it's not just the way that we as leaders frame legacy code but also how peers talk to each other about code particularly for example if you have someone who's been with the company for longer in the team and then someone new comes along and maybe says something a bit negative about a piece of code that they wrote in the three great virtues of a programmer laziness impatience and hubris like they want to make code that nobody says anything bad about right so yeah. to how to be sitting in a team and have work that you're quite proud of and then have someone say something negative about that, that can be really demotivating. Never so thought about that. Yeah. Being really, being really sensitive about the way in which we talk about each other's work, I think, can be yeah. really useful in helping motivate the team. Brilliant. I actually never thought about that in software engineering. Um, mm. That must happen a bit, like, unknown as well. Like... Uh, I'm definitely guilty of it. I've done it before. People have done it about my work. It's just something that we really have to be a bit more proactive about because it can be yeah. really demotivating if if we do it poorly. Yeah, really, really valid point. Um, and like you said, code we write today essentially is legacy tomorrow. <laughs> um, now this is awesome. I'm just conscious of the time. Um, I think if if you know if we're if we're happy to wrap it up. Uh, at this point everyone good to go so um, yeah I just want to say thank you so much um, for all of you amazing leaders joining another Evolution Exchange podcast and providing such interesting insights you know surrounding such an important topic um, of balancing legacy code so thank you so much for listening and I hope to see you on a, another Evolution Exchange podcast